Record Collections and Recollections. Out of the Box, with Mia Hull on FBI Radio. Hey, you're listening to FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Mia Hull and this is Out of the Box, the place where every Thursday from 12 to 1, I sit down with one person and their stories and their record collection and look at how those things interact. I'm coming to you from FBI's studio in Redfern, and my guests are joining me remotely from Maroubra today. Each of us are coming to you from unceded Gadigal lands, so I want to take this moment to pay my respects to Gadigal elders past, present and emerging, and extend that respect to any First Nations person listening right now. Aboriginal people have been sharing stories and songs on this land since the beginning of time. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Today I'm joined by director, actor and producer Lily Volatins. Without distilling Lily's life into a single idea too much, she has built this amazing career on the idea that the arts can remind us of our humanity and our empathy and that the arts have this innate ability to reflect society back to us. As we pour over her record collection today, we're going to look at the moments that brought her to this idea. Lily's actually joining me today in the midst of her professional directing debut. Her play Bad Machine kicks off at Kajula Powerhouse tonight. So we're going to look at that too and why Bad Machine is so important. So much to get through today, Lily. Thank you so much for joining me on Out of the Box. Thank you so much for having me, Mia. It's a pleasure. This story kind of starts before your life even began. I want to talk about your dad's life. Where did he grow up? Yeah, so my dad was my dad was born in Salzburg, Austria, in a refugee camp, actually. My Nodge Mama and Nodge Papa, his parents, were escaping the Soviet occupation in Hungary and um they my my Nodge Mama was pregnant with him and they got across the border with nothing. And he spent the first, he was born there and he spent the first two years of his life in a refugee camp there. And then eventually they were able to get passage to Australia and turned up in Australia with a suitcase between them. Where did they settle when they got to Australia? They settled in Bankstown um, and they moved into a house. Uh, they were put into a house with two other families um, sharing, sharing the house, um, a three bedroom with a board house with two other families and they had a, a bedroom for their family and the other families were each in a bedroom. And they had a, a roster to be able to use the kitchen and the, the bathroom. And then they, yeah, my grandparents worked their, their butts off and ended up buying that house. And then when they passed away, um, they passed away very young um, in their early 60s, both of them. They had a quite a aggressive cancer from the DDT spray that they were sprayed with when they came into Australia and they died from tumours in their early 60s. My dad actually kept the house, he uh, bought it out from his two um, siblings and my parents still own that house to this day. So it's quite important, I guess, as part of my family's history, um, this property that has so many memories from my childhood for the few years I had with my grandparents before they passed away and also just is in you know representative of of them kind of starting from scratch again in in a new country and going from one room to ownership so my parents I grew up in the Hawkesbury I grew up in western sydney um I was born in Windsor and I grew up on Darug country um in a place called Glossodia and my parents now live at Lower Portland on the Colo River 
And that's where I grew up. But my father grew up in Bankstown and my mother grew up in Liverpool. Yeah. And later in the show, I do want to, you know, focus on, on your life. Obviously, this is why you're on the show and talk about talk about your coming up. I'm so interested in your dad's story, though. You told me that he had two siblings. Were they born in that house in Bankstown as well? So it was um, my dad's the eldest and then he has a younger sister and a younger brother. And yeah, they, so they were born in Bankstown and they grew up in Bankstown. It was a different experience for my dad because he did come from, he came from another country. He was quite, you know, he was very young when he came to Australia, but he'd already started to learn language and not English. And so they came to Australia and my grandparents and my dad didn't speak any English and my grandparents didn't sort of speak English in the home either. So when my dad started school, it was quite challenging for him he was still getting a grasp of the English language and there was quite a bit of ostracism and you know I think he was told that like f you meant thank you and so he'd say f you to the teachers thinking he was saying thank you and then he'd get in trouble and kind of not Mm. not understand why so it was a challenging time that was a time when to be coming from a European country especially when you don't have much money um you know there was there was quite a bit of um quite a bit of ostracism towards people from who were com- coming in post-World War Two. This might be a little bit too abstract and maybe not something that you can speak to, but do you think your dad brought any lessons from that experience to the way that he raised you and your sibling? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the way, the resilience of his parents, but also that there's a story that he always told me from when we were kids of when he and his parents were in Salzburg and it was snowing and they bought a banana and it was such a massive deal to be able to buy a banana because it was, you know, like importing tropical fruits to Salzburg was crazy and it was post-World War II and everyone was poor. And they bought this banana and they had no idea how to open it because they'd never had a banana before. And they um, squeezed the end of it and it popped out and it fell into the mud. And they, and they laughed. They, they, they just laughed at the absurdity of this fruit that they'd never encountered before and it was that was one of the stories that I I learned from a very young age was that even with amidst the challenges that are inevitable in life you know it's kind of that thing of pain is an inevitability for all human beings but suffering is not and it's about the perspective that you take you know finding positives and finding joy in in whatever you can Lily, I think it's so incredible that the experiences of, you know, your grandparents, two generations above you have had such a major impact on the person that you've become. And we're going to spend the show exploring that. But first, a song. What's the first song you'd like to play today? Um, I'd like to play John Williamson's Cootamundra Waddle, which is, um, was my grandparents' song. So that was actually my Nodge Mama and Nodge Papa's song together. And then... Growing up, it was a song that my dad would play for us. And for my dad's 70th birthday two years ago, my brother and I actually recorded a cover of it for his birthday present. So it's been an ever-present song in my life. And um, I think it's beautiful. The string arrangement is gorgeous. And lyrically, I think it's also, it captures the kind of essence of my family really beautifully. On FBI Radio 94.5, this is John Williamson. The song's called Cootamundra Waddle. It's July and the winter sun is shining 
And the Kudamandra Wattle is my friend For all at once my childhood never left me Cause Wattle Blossoms bring it back again You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5 DAB, or if you're streaming via the podcast or on the website, that song was called Cootamundra Waddle. It was by John Williamson, and it was chosen by my guest on Out of the Box today, director, actor, and producer Lily Bolitans. Lily, as you were introducing that song, you talked about you and your brother having recorded a cover of it. It makes me think that maybe you come from a musical family. Can you speak to that? Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. I come from a family of artists, which is, I think, part of why I've ended up being an artist myself. My brother is an incredible musician and um, particularly on guitar. My dad is an incredible um, guitarist, but he also plays a bit of a bit of mandolin and banjo. And my mom is a visual artist and she went to what is now Kofa before it was Kofa. Um, my mum my and my dad went from being, my dad was a musician in bands and my mum was a visual artist. Um, they went to becoming, they transitioned to being school teachers. So my mum is still a high school art teacher and my dad is recently retired as a high school English teacher. My brother is a sound engineer and sound designer. He's actually the sound designer for this show <laughs> along with, and the composer along with Kieran J. Callanan. And yeah, so I grew I grew up with I grew up being surrounded by an appreciation for the arts and not really the forms that I have explored. Um, I, I have to say that it was a bit. I guess I was a bit. My parents were very supportive of me, but they're also like, we have no idea about the things that you're interested in. I was interested in dance and acting from a young age, and they were were like, sure, how can we help you? But also, who? What is this? <laughs> what What is this thing that you're interested in? But yeah, like the, the sort of, I guess, catalytic background to my development was this household that was really interested in creativity, expression, learning, I think, more so than artistic expression. It was about kind of knowledge. And I think that's something that came from my dad's formative years is that he was the first person in his family to go to university and it was a privilege. You know, it's, it was not a given. And my grandmother was admitted into the top acting school in Hungary and wasn't able to do it because of World War Two. And so that when my dad got to go to university, it was something that he kind of grabbed with both hands and has never lost it. You're talking about, yeah, your your family encouraging your, your want to dance and you and your brother's love for the arts. I want to talk about the backdrop to all of that, Lily. You grew up in Darug country in the Hawkesbury. When you picture that space what does it look like to you lots of trees um the sound of magpies um and getting attacked by them in (laughs) in magpie season (laughs) getting attacked by plovers snakes and funnel web spiders yeah like I think uh, you know we we talked um briefly about this earlier Mia but I consider myself a bit of a country girl even though I'm not I grew up surrounded by bush and I grew up um, fishing and gold panning and camping. That was kind of my family's vibe. So I 
think of myself as a country girl and I very much feel connected to the land and having a respect for the land and being porous to her messages. So I would say that my my vision of the Hawkesbury is the combination of the beauty and also the respect for its sometimes terrors. I remember when we were kids, we were, we, I mean, there were funnel web spiders everywhere in the Hawkesbury and they come out in a certain, you know, like when it's damp and cold and we would just, we had to learn at a very young age what a funnel web spider looks like because otherwise as a kid you're going to get bitten by one. Mm. And um, my brother would collect them. So he was like seven years old and he'd be collecting these completely venomous spiders in jars and bringing them back to mum and dad and going, look at this one. Um, so, so that's kind of my memory of, of childhood, really. It's interesting to, you know, you described um, having grown up in this household that, you know, implored learning and encouraged growth in that way it sounds like that translates not just to education and pursuing goals but then also learning about your surroundings and you know the things that you've grown up into and before we jump to a song I I want to know if at this point in your life you were ever looking forward and if you knew innately that this would be your future and that acting and producing and directing and I guess theatre in general was always a, a clear path for you. Yeah, I, I, I was, you know, two years old when I said to my parents, I, I, I must dance. I don't remember it, I was so young, and, but I was insistent. And so they, they put me in dance classes at age three and that was my first sort of impetus that came from out of nowhere to, to express. And I started dancing at age three and then I did this poetry recitation thing through primary school when I was five in, I think, kindergarten or year one. And a verse speaking teacher came into the school and um, a a group of students were selected. We were given a poem and we had to say it in the Stedford and I won. And that that was kind of another aha. And I realised that that felt good and that felt natural. So that kind of kicked off the, the acting side of things. And I continued doing dance through until I was 19 and I picked up acting more and more. I got into the New South Wales State Drama Company and did that through high school, you know, performing at the Seymour Centre and doing stuff at the Sydney Opera House. So I kind of had a taste of professional theatre and professional level performance when I was in high school. And that was when I guess I was like, it just felt correct, you know, like I, I don't know where this urge in me I don't know where it came from like why do I have this burning desire to do this thing that is like it's it's hard to do and you know it's Mm. it's a lot of rejection and I as much as I've tried to kind of put it out of my life and be like no 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 no, I don't want to do it anymore I want to take the more rational path it's this itch I cannot scratch I, I do want to talk about what you just said about trying to put it out of your life and having it be this itch that you can't scratch but first you've chosen a song by Cocteau Twins Lily tell me about this one yeah, so I've chosen Heaven or Las Vegas by Cocteau Twins. So I was I was working, I know we're about to get into this, but I was working for Andrew Denton's production company, Zapruder's other films, and I was I became good mates with the creator of Gruen Transfer, John Casimir, who has exceptional musical taste. And I was I'm a music nerd 
and he he gave me this album and said I think you'd I think you'd be into it and I listened to this album and I was like oh my god I listened to this album and I was just blown away by the vocals of Elizabeth Fraser you can't really understand what she's saying and that's what I found so interesting to begin with was that it's kind of illegible but her vocals like she sounds like she touches God you know, there's, there is this um, purity of artistry through the voice and she uses language really just as, a, as kind of a bit of a mechanism through which to get that out. You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. My name is Mia Hull. I am joined by Lily Bolitans, and she chose that song, Cocteau Twins, Heaven or Las Vegas, just before we played it. We talked briefly about your time with Andrew Denton and, you know, maybe moving away from the arts, but having it as this itch that really needs a scratch. Before we get into that, Lily, I guess to paint a picture of it all, both of your parents are artists, but have gone down the career path of teacher. Do you think maybe that's impacted this outlook and the idea that the arts isn't always a viable path? Yeah, definitely. I think I would never, I would never blame my parents and say, oh, you know, like <laughs> your the way that you've done things. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, think, I don't think that's really... Um, fair at all but I, I definitely think that there was a sense of wanting to have stability and and wanting to make sure that I was safe and the arts not feeling like it was something that was necessarily conducive to that and you know not really coming from a family where I had this sort of like aristocracy of people who were already interconnected in the film or theatre worlds or whatever yeah it was kind of like it was a bit daunting and so I was I was going back and forth between like I want to do this thing. I have to do this thing. It's my soul's purpose. And then, you know, got to put on my rational cap and do do the sensible thing. So, like, there have been kind of ebbs and flows of it, I think. Like, it's been a bit of a spasmodic, like, battle for me. You know, I thought, well, great, I'll do physiotherapy because that's, like, the most logical translation of my dance training. And then, you know, getting out of high school and trying to get into NIDA, getting told by NIDA, you need to go out and live um, and then come back to us. So I, I, I did an undergrad degree in film and history at UNSW, but it was, you know, like theory based. And I couldn't find a way to, to put this feeling that I was meant to do something that was more artistic than that to rest. So I, I was hating my degree. I applied for a job at um, Andrew Denton's production company because I've always respected him and I got the job. And so I quit my degree and started working there. And I was like, you know, it's not exactly what I want to be doing, but I completely am on the same. It's not as though Andrew Denton is not artistic and he's incredibly intelligent and his philosophies are aligned with mine. Um, his ideologies align with mine. So I was so so grateful to be able to work for him and I quit my degree and started working there and I but I still couldn't shake it and I applied for NIDA one more time and was told um 
you're never getting in. You're never gonna. You're never gonna get in. You're never gonna be an actor. You've got it. You're meant to be a director, which is very ironic because that's what I'm doing now. <laughs> and, um, but I was so angry at the time that I went home and I, I uh, jumped onto my computer and they'd been saying throughout the whole audition process, the callbacks and whatnot at NIDA, you know, Juilliard, our sister school, Juilliard, our sister school. So I went home and I was like, screw NIDA, I'm going to get into Juilliard. Mm. <laughs> and I applied for Juilliard and, and yeah, next thing I was kind of, I was like, oh God, I've done this now. I've applied. I've got to figure out how to get to New York. So I took a two weeks um, leave from Zapruder, flew to New York and auditioned for Juilliard. And I also auditioned for NYU while I was there because I figure I may as well make the best of my time. Um, got through the callbacks, didn't get into Juilliard. So I, I didn't know about the grad program system in America, which we don't have over here. But um, so I auditioned for NYU undergrad and the woman, I auditioned for her and she, she said, take a seat. You're too old for this program and you're too good, you're too good for this program. You're going to be bored. How old were you when they told you that you were too old for the program? 23. But I don't think she meant it. In that way. I think it was more that it was like a bunch of 18-year-olds fresh out of high school waiting outside being like, you know, you know, and NYU is 50K a year and they, they do accept, you know, they accept like 300 people into the undergrad program. So it's not, it's not necessarily a targeted path to get to where you want to get to anyway. So she was like, I think you need to speak to the grad program. And she took me up. She paused the audition process and took me to the fifth floor and said, this is Lily. You need to see her. And I kind of didn't understand the gravity of getting into NYU grad acting at that point, which was probably working in my favour. But I went in and I auditioned and I was just like, I don't know where I am. I was just this barefoot, no makeup Dozzie. And there's all these <laughs> Americans auditioning in like heels and full makeup and hair set. And like, I was just, I just looked like the girl from the bush. And <laughs> Were you actually barefoot? Or is that just... Yeah, I was actually... No, no, no. I was literally barefoot. And I, I, I said, when I got in, one of my... Um, one of the students from the year above, because you can watch the auditions as a student, he said to me, he was like, we just thought you were... We were like, who is this person? Because I was so relaxed. And everyone else is like, you know, there's a thousand people that audition for this program and 16 get in. And so it's, it's high stakes. And I was just like, do you mind if I just take a sip of water between my monologues? Because I had no idea. I'd just come from, you know, I'd never heard about the grad program until they'd taken me up from the other um, one. So mm. I ended up getting a call back. It goes from like around 1,000 down to 50. And I ended up getting a call back and I had to fly back over. But at that point when I got the call back, I was like, oh, God, I've got to start. I've got to finish my un- undergrad degree. Otherwise, I can't do this. So I enrolled in my undergrad degree Andrew was amazing and allowed me to do my undergrad degree with my full-time work. So I was like just juggling both. And then I took one week off again to fly back for the callbacks because I couldn't take off any more time. Otherwise I would have failed on non-attendance. And I flew back over, did the callbacks, flew back to Sydney, landed, had a voicemail saying you've been accepted. And I didn't start until August. So there was time. So, but basically I came back, landed, found out about it, had to go straight to uni class and then like finished my degree. But by the time I finished my degree and got my transcript saying you've got an undergrad degree, it was like a week before I started 
a graduate degree. <laughs> and they offered you a scholarship there as well, didn't they? Yeah, they did. They offered me. At first they offered me a half scholarship, which I was like, my parents were like, take it, take it, take it, we'll help you. But I, I was like, no, you know, it's 50K a year, US dollars, and it's too much. And so I said to them, no, if you can't offer me more, I can't afford to do it. And they were like, okay, all right, sorry, you know. And that was it. And my parents were like, what are you doing? <laughs> and, I, and I was just like, that's, you know, it's just too much of a financial burden on you guys. And then they called me back and they said, we've found the money. And I got, I ended up getting full scholarship, which was amazing. Congratulations. In the next part of the show, I want to talk about, you know, doing your master's in New York and what happened after that. But first, we'll jump into a song. Lily, what would you like to play next? Mm. Um, I want to play a song by Sun Ra Orchestra called Space is the Place. And it's just a section of this song because the um, well, there are multiple recordings, but my favourite recording is about 22 minutes long. Sun Ra is one of my most... I look up to him so much. He's a musician, a jazz musician, um, a poet, a philosopher, even though he would shirk that term. He, he just was such a visionary. You know, he started this movement of uh, Afrofuturistic jazz in the 1950s, which was so ahead of its time. His whole thing philosophically was around like there not being a safe space on the entirety of planet Earth for the black body and imagining a safe space in space. But then he was like, he, he kind of imagined his music as being um, it's quite out there, but so cool, like a vibrational transportation system to this other plane. So basically like, I guess on its, uh, on one level, it's like music as a transformational thing to make people feel better and therefore be better. But then I think quite literally, he believed that his music was capable of transporting people to a better planet, <laughs> which, uh, yeah, visionary. Let's go there now. Let's be transported right now on FBI Radio 94.5. This song is called Space is the Place, a section of the song chosen by Lily Bolitans, my guest on Out of the Box today. It's Sun Ra Orchestra. You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5. This show is out of the box. And the song you just heard was by Sun Ra Orchestra. It was called Space is the Place. And my guest on Out of the Box chose it, Lily Bolitans, who is a producer, actor, and now a director. Lily, we were just talking about, you know, getting into NYU, huge, and your life starting in New York. Let's go back there now. When we were talking on the phone about this the other day, you kind of said that there's no equivalent to masters that we have in Australia in the States and, and you described it as being quite intense. Can, can you walk me through that? Yeah, yeah. It was, um, yeah, the hours are just crazy. <laughs> like they really do set you up to be able to be um, a bit of a, you know, a workhorse. The, you're in school for the masters is for three years and it's from 9am till 11pm six to seven days a week for that three years um you get the summer the summer break off but you're often going off and working on theater stuff during that time anyway 
but it's like, yeah, 14, 14 hour days, like six or seven days a week, plus homework on top of that and having to get off book for stuff. So like it was not abnormal to be finishing rehearsals at 11, having to like get together with a scene study partner and rehearse ahead of class the next day and then be back in at like 8.30 ready to go. So it was kind of like it was – and you couldn't take any time off sick. If you got – you had like one sick day a year and if you have more than that, you kind of are at risk of being kicked out of the program, which someone was kicked out of the program in my class. So they they mm. do do it. So it was kind of like it set me up for – it set me up with a work ethic and I guess like a resilience that is definitely helping me right now because it's been – we've had like full you know floods and COVID and all sorts of things going on with this show and I think NYU gave me that sort of grit that is really helpful. And at the time did you feel like you were scratching that itch you had for the arts in spite of how hard it was? Yeah yeah oh I was scratching it it was getting scratched hard it was kind of like I'd said I, I've got this itch that I need scratched and then NYU was like oh okay we'll scratch mm. it until it bleeds <laughs> um <laughs> yeah no it was it, I mean it was it, it was really like they overwhelm you with learning which is great and it's you know none of it's book well it's text-based but none of it's um book-based it's all it's conservatory so it's all just like up on your feet doing stuff like doing voice doing singing doing um like scene study working on professional productions yeah it really gave me a sense of like my hunger my hunger for it didn't didn't diminish mm. if if you will like it was really mm. challenging really really challenging but I bit down harder and it didn't make me go oh god what have I signed up signed myself up for it made me go Yes. So with that in mind, I want to talk about direction and drive. And I guess I kicked off this show talking about how your shtick almost in the arts is, you know, giving a human face to these big issues. And earlier you described your ideal as an artist as trying to make the world a better place. When do you think that became important to you? I think it's always been there. I think it's always been the reason that I've wanted to do it. I just think it's taken time for me to, for my development to catch up to that, if that makes sense. Like, I think that was always the impetus. Yeah, like the expression of humanity and um, kind of infecting people with empathy, I think has always been there. But I think it started to get more distilled in me yeah, definitely around the time that I was doing Constellations in DC. Like that was when, you know, that was when the, when was that? That was 2017, 2016, 2016. And it was right when all the Trump stuff was happening. And then, you know, I was, I was living in DC and I was, so I remember seeing Lynn Nottage's sweat at Arena Stage and it's this like incredible play about like the working class in Pittsburgh and um, it's like kind of, I guess, not dissimilar to what Brooke has done here with, with Bad Machine. And I remember seeing that and being like, my God, this is such powerful theatre at a timely moment and it affects, it could affect how people vote, it could affect how people think about um, about politics. 
And then I won an award for um, Constellations and I was back in DC for the awards at the, it was the Helen Hayes Awards and I won the Outstanding Lead Actress in a Play. And that was, the ceremony took place at the Lincoln Theatre. There was a stone's throw from the White House and it was right when, it was in 2017, it was right when Trump was doing the immigration bans and the energy in the room really was of like artists coming together and talking like a lot of the speeches were about we as artists have a role to play in ensuring that we don't lose our humanity in ensuring that we don't lose our sense of empathy and that we don't let demagogues and tyrants um and dictators um you know creep their way into power and set a new standard and come from a way which is a musical about like a disparate group of people coming together because of you know post 9-11 and and it's about love and you know camaraderie and support that was one of the shows that was cleaning up at the Helen Hayes so there was a lot of talk about you know immigration 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 in the speeches and then when I won I didn't actually have a speech planned because I didn't expect to win and I ended up just kind of saying something to the effect of if I hadn't if if Australia had of not being accepting of people fleeing um, dictatorship, I wouldn't be here because my dad wouldn't have made it to Australia safely. And the immigration bans that Trump is doing, mm. you know, is the scary direction that the world is moving on, moving in. And we need to, you know, as artists, it's it's more vital now than ever for us to be showing people what you know either what, what I said before either reflecting society back so that people can consider if it's the, the direction we want to be moving in or modeling alternatives for how we can do it better. Lily I love the idea of reflecting society back and in a couple of minutes we will talk about that through the lens of your upcoming show Bad Machine but first we'll jump into a song you've picked mm. Kelsey Lou to play on Out of the Box today why'd you pick this one? So I was actually, when I came out of school, I was dating one of Kelsey's friends and um, she took me to her show and I didn't know what I was going to be seeing. And I, I remember, you know, I was in this bar in Brooklyn and, um, and we were sitting there and this quite small f- woman comes out with a cello and the, she started, you know, it was quite loud and she started playing so softly and there was just this presence that she had and the room went to stillness without her saying a word and you could have heard a pin drop and she held that space she had a violinist come on and and do some stuff as well but it was basically just her and her cello and it was one of the most powerful performances i have ever seen and the presence of one woman on a stage with one instrument was something that just kind of yeah really struck me so that's why I chose it the power of one this is Kelsey Lou the song's called dreams listening to FBI radio 94.5 
You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Mia Hull. I am joined by Lily Bolitans, the chooser of that song, Dreams, by Kelsey Liu. And just before we played that, Lily, we were talking about kind of the crux of why you make art and this idea that art has the ability to reflect society back to us. You're a producer and an actor and now a director making your directing debut tonight uh, through the show Bad Machine happening at Kazula Powerhouse. Let's talk about Bad Machine, Lily. What made you want to make this play and what's it about? Yeah, um, I so I was working as the um, creative producer of contemporary performance at Campbelltown Arts Centre and Brooke Robinson had just returned back from London due to COVID and she cold hit me up for a meeting and we sat down and she'd had this idea for a play about robo-debt. We talked about the fact that in London, something like that, you know, in the UK, if something like that had happened, she wouldn't be able to make, make a premiere work about it because there'd already be like two or three or four. And I kind of, you know, said same for, same for America. And so we bonded over the fact that we were frustrated by the lack of immediacy and reflexivity in theatre in um, Australia and kind of so we were like why don't we do it and that's that's basically where it began so we we applied for a grant and got a grant a commissioning grant to support the writing of the play Brooke researched and wrote it and then I went from being creative producer of contemporary performance at Campbelltown to being the director of the play (laughs) congrats (laughs) yeah thanks thanks um yeah, it's, so I've kind of been there for across all stages of it and it is my yeah directing debut, but I've worked, I, I have done directing stuff before, um, just not, I guess, in this capacity, um, more sort of co-op and experimental stuff. But yeah, I think because I've been across the development of it from all across, you know, every stage of the project, it felt like a very organic move and yeah, it's been a joy. Let's talk about RoboDebt just as an issue for someone who might not be totally across it. What happened and why did you want to tell that story through theatre? So it was an automated debt recovery system that the government introduced. It was conceived in 2015 and it was conceived to make money, essentially, to to compensate for a budget deficit, a federal budget deficit. So it was the the goal was to make two point one billion dollars, and the way that this was done was by using an algorithm to income average ATO records against Centrelink records. So why that was problematic was that a lot a lot of people who receive Centrelink are not on a consistent salary. So it might be a student who's earning more money across the summer break and is only earning a little bit of money through the uni semester. And what the algorithm would do is take those records of the higher, the higher earnings and average them across the year and then auto-generate a debt that it would then send out to someone without any information as to how it was actually ascertained in the first place. So over 400,000, according to various sources, but I mean, they're reputable sources, the ABC, The Guardian, Centrelink and... Service Australia themselves, over 400,000 people received a robo-debt. Some of them were very large figures and robo-debt notices would be sent out with Australian Federal Police 
um, logos. They would include the threat of a jail term for non-payment. Debt collectors were contracted by uh, Services Australia and debt collectors would either call people or turn up in person to, to try to, to, try to um, recover the debts. So it was in, an incredibly stressful experience for the people who received them. There's also the people who were receiving these notices were often people who were in vulnerable circumstances. So people who were escaping domestic abuse, people with um, substance abuse challenges, people with illness, um, with disability. I know that there is a person in, I think, a, a Guardian article that they cite uh, a man with a severe intellectual disability who received a $14,000 robo-debt notice for a disability payment. And yeah, so, so, so you know, it's kind of, it was this, this program of people being targeted, um, many of whom were people who were some of our, you know, most vulnerable members of society who need support. And it was a pretty, um, pretty brittle and inhumane system and program. Why did you want to take that story on through theatre? I think what Brooke and I spoke about was the fact that there is, that, you know, there's a lot of um, great journalism on the subject and there are a lot of statistics. Um, some, some of them are blurry. You know, the, the question of how many people died as a result of suicide caused by the stressors of robo-debt is unclear and um, the, the Australian government has denied being the cause of any deaths um, or robo-debt being the cause of any deaths. Um, you just have to do a, a quick Google search to see that there are lots of people who lost family members to suicide who disagree with that assertion. Mothers who lost their 22-year-old sons, you know, 20 five-year-old sons but basically there's a lot of there is a lot of data you know over 400,000 people receiving one um over 2,030 people dying after receiving a robo-debt notice um 20,000 letters being sent out a week during the robo-debt campaign whereas previously Centrelink would be sending out 20,000 letters annually and these mm. these statistics are so overwhelming that it almost causes us to to switch off and I think why, why mm. theatre is so effective is that this, you know, this play is actually not a political play, it's a human play, but that is the crux of politics, re really. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, our, our elected leaders are there to serve us as people, as a society. The play focuses in on four people, individuals, imaginative individuals, and three of them are people who receive robo-debt notices. One of them is a person who's working at Centrelink because it's, I think it was also an incredibly stressful experience for those people. Um, and it's just, you know, it's, it's an attempt to humanise the data um, by, by, by focusing in on sort of four individuals and imagining what it is to be put through that experience. Oh, yeah, if anyone's listening to this and wants to put a face to this beautiful voice you've been hearing for the past hour, it's Lily, <laughs> it's Lily Bollertons, who is the director and now actor in the play Bad Machine, happening at Kajula Powerhouse from tonight, the 17th of March, through until the 19th of March. Tickets for that are $15. I'll put all the details up in the programs page on fbiradio.com. Lily, thanks so much for joining me today. Is there anything you want to add before I let you go? 
No, it's been such a pleasure talking to you, Mia. Thank you so much. I just wanted to say it was it was a really special experience to be able to talk about, you know, the trajectory of my life with you specifically. Um, so thank you for the opportunity. I'm gushing. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, what song would you like to end on today? Oh, I would like to end on Midnight Oil's Power and the Passion because this song is actually the compositional spine to the work Bad Machine as um, reimagined by Kieran J. Callanan and my brother, Robbie Ballatins. I think that it is a powerful song. I grew up listening to it. Um, it also, the lyrics are kind of speaking to the, you know, the the happy lazing in the sun Australian kind of she'll be right um, mentality but also the kind of um, the creep of of a right wing coming in from the side and I think there is something about that that's relevant today as well so that's where I'm gonna leave us a little taste of the Bad Machine soundtrack. This is Power and the Passion by Midnight Oil, chosen by my guest on Out of the Box, Lily Bolitans. If you did want to listen back to this episode, you can do so via the programs page on fbiradio.com, where you'll also find a full list of the songs that Lily chose for the show. And you can also find all of the details to Bad Machine, which again is happening from tonight, the 17th of March, through until the 19th of March at Kajula Powerhouse. You can also listen and back by the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Stay tuned. Lunch up next. FBI.